Hello, and welcome to the weekly worship podcast for Fuquay Arena United Methodist Church. We think it's important, not just that you listen today, but we would invite you to worship with us today. If you'd like to further engage your faith or the community around you and like to partner with us, uh, please visit our website, fvumc.org, for more information. Also, we'd love to hang out with you on a Sunday morning, whether that's live, online, or in person. Online on Sunday mornings on our website or Facebook page or YouTube channel, you can enjoy the venue with us, which is a worship service crafted for community online, or you can join our live in-person services online at 1010 for our contemporary, 1115 for our traditional. If you'd like to worship in person with us, we have worship at 9 o'clock and 1010 for our contemporary worship services and 1115 for our traditional worship. At the end of the day, we believe that when and where you worship is not nearly as important as that you worship. And so we're so glad to be with you today, worshiping together. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to uh, installment one of Favumsi at the Movies. Uh, Every summer, we like to do this. We like to pick some feature films and then force me to preach on it. Uh, And so that's where we are today. We're going to be looking at the movie Turning Red, a new movie by Pixar that's out pretty recently. Hopefully, you've had a chance to see it. Beautiful film. Love it. It's great. It's awesome. I totally recommend it. Uh, If not, you can go check it out later, but you can still hang with us today. I'll give you enough. And uh, when you watch it, maybe you can watch it at a deeper level when you do. Um, I've seen this movie twice, twice. The first time I saw it uh, was just in bit and piece, uh, which is often how I watch all my movies. Um, If I find that if I do that, you know, regularly enough while my kids are watching it, sometimes I can build the whole plot line together. I will confess, I've never actually watched Frozen from beginning to end, but I know all the songs and I finally cleared up the difference between uh, Sven and Hans, uh, which took a while. But anywho, um, the second time I watched it, watched it all the way through and really, um, while I enjoyed it the first time, I found it deeply meaningful the second time through. And so um, I would encourage you uh, to do just that. I'd like to walk you through it uh, just a little bit in case you haven't seen it. Uh, or at least to set up our conversation today, if you have. Um, So here we go. Uh, At root, I think that this is a story about uh, sort of the coming of age of a young woman named May, May Lynn, or May for short. Um, And we follow May through some of the trials and tribulations of that season in life that we call adolescence. Uh, It's an awkward phase as she's like coming to understand who she is. And really, I think that the, the movie itself is kind of centered in on the relationship between May and her mother, whose name is Ming. Uh, it's an increasingly difficult, contentious, and complex relationship between the two of them. Uh, while May is growing up, uh, her mood swings, her independent self, all of the insecurities uh, that come along with that season of life as a teenager, they all get represented in this movie by an almost uncontrollable transformation, like a a poofing out of May. She turns into this big, red, fluffy panda. Um, And she spends most of the movie trying to figure out how to control that, how to control the mood swings and her independent self and all the insecurities. Um, She tries uh, to to try and control that that red panda from coming out, like when it arrives, how it arrives, what it's like when it does, what other people think and feel about it when it does. Um, And her mom, fortunately, agrees to help her figure out how to do that. Uh, Because her mom, it turns out, when she was growing up, also became a red panda in this particular point of life um, and had to figure out how to control that as well. Now, I will say, 
that helping her daughter figure out how to control it does not go particularly well. Uh, as I said, I think that this is a, a story about a relationship between a mom and a daughter that is increasingly difficult, contentious, and complex. Um, and so um, we see that happen, uh, that relationship sort of develop between May and Ming. Um, now, I suspect that by the end of this movie, um, we've all seen a different film. Uh, we've all seen a different story depending on who we are, what stage of life we're in, where we've been in that life, what we've experienced. So for kids who are oblivious to what it's like to be a teenager, uh, they see a really cute story about a girl who can turn into a red fluffy panda. It's like her superpower and it's comical and it's fun. Uh, for those who are later in their teenage existence or maybe young adults just on the other side of it, who I actually think is the target audience of this particular film, um, they, I suspect, see this and they recognize this young woman struggling to become who she is against kind of all of the expectations of everybody else in her world and life and how she's kind of fighting for that existence. And it gets represented in a really, you know, rather kind of un like unthreatening, non-threatening, fluffy red panda. Um, and so I, I assume that if you're a young adult watching it, that's kind of how you might experience it. Um, for parents of teenagers, um, you probably see this as animated documentary uh, for life as it is in your house right now. Um, and for parents who have kids that have not yet reached uh, that age, we are really disappointed in Pixar and their foray into the horror genre. Um, so, you know, uh, but... <laughs> We all come to it, I suggest, uh, in different sorts of ways. Um, for me, what really makes this story meaningful, no matter how you're coming to it, is the addition of one more generation. So we have May, we have her mom, Ming. And then early in the film, um, as this is all sort of transpiring, um, Ming's mother, so May's grandmother, arrives on the scene. Uh, Grandma Wu. And this is actually one of the scenes that I saw the first time I saw it. And uh, again, I didn't see the beginning or the end, but I saw this cut scene where the grandmother, Wu, shows up uh, on the scene for the very first time. And despite the fact that I did not understand the context of the panda, despite the fact that I had never seen this thing come to completion, when I saw the grandmother, the whole movie all of a sudden started to make sense. When we meet the grandmother, Wu, uh, the very first time we see her, she shows up. Uh, she is prim and she is proper as a character. She is exacting. She has high expectations for everyone. She is clearly in charge. And while there is uh, comedy and, you know, complexity around her, like there is not with her. Um, she is not one thing is out of place for her with one exception, with one exception. Over her right eye, she has a scar, uh, sort of a reddish hue um, to it. and. If you watch the whole film, that scar gets explained. Ming, her daughter, May's mother, gave her that scar when one day she was kind of hulked out as the red panda. Um, and kind of they go into it a little bit. Uh, but my guess is, my guess is, for those of us who have lived through this season, for those of us who have some sort of vantage point to it, as soon as we saw that scar, we knew exactly what it was. We knew exactly what it meant. And my guess is um, we could identify that scar, not just on her brow, but we could begin the work of identifying that scar um, in our own lives. I think for kids, it's just a detail that makes her look more menacing, uh, sort of fits the tone of her character. 
But for those of us uh, who have walked through that season, we know, we know what that scar means. Uh, it means that we have a mother, right? A grandmother now, but a mother still, nonetheless, who is carrying around a super visible reminder of the pain of a past relationship that got broken. A fracture in a relationship with one that she loves more than anything else in the entire world. And it means that she has to think about that pain every time she looks in the mirror. That every time she looks in the mirror, she has to deal with the shame of what it means to feel uh, like a, a failure as a parent. It means for her daughter, Ming, that every time she sees her mother, she has to be reminded not just of her own wounds that maybe are not quite as visible. Uh, she's not just reminded of her own wounds every time she sees her mom's face. But now she also, at the same time, has to deal with the fact that she has scarred her mother, one that she loved more than anything else in the entire world. And she has to deal with her shame around wounding her mom. And I would suggest that not dealing with her shame is actually why she's in the process of fighting in the same sort of way with her own daughter. It makes her feel like she can't love uh, or be restored because the wound that she's given her mom is her fault. And she sort of continues that cycle. And so for May, the child, the daughter, the youngest, and the, seer, and the, um, and the generations here, uh, maybe she's hopeful that her relationship with her mom can be different than the relationship she witnesses between her mother and grandmother. She may not understand the scar yet, um, but certainly she sees that their relationship is not good. Uh, she gets a chance to, to see some of that. And so while she's actively trying to avoid that reality, she's living a sort of claws out life um, with her mom and is actively doing the damage that she earnestly does not want to do and is no doubt feeling shame about that. And that shame seems to make her panda rage even harder. So after I watched the whole movie, um, and there are lots of things that we could talk about again I have never been a mother or a daughter, um, and certainly not a mother or a daughter in a mother-daughter relationship. So, uh, But I found myself continually sort of like bouncing between all three of these characters and trying to situate myself in their story. Um, I'd love to talk about the end and the conclusion and the beautiful buttoning up of everything that happens at the end, and I think that there is great beauty there. I would encourage you to go watch it. Dive deep. Watch it slowly. Think about it with somebody else. Talk about it. Um, process it deeply. But I don't think they can get to the conclusion until they have acknowledged the scar over Grandma Wu's eye. And there is something in my mind so thoroughly Jesus-y about that work. And so that's where I want to spend just a little bit of time. Here's how I think I want to say it, if I could just say it super straightforwardly, um, without showing you all my work to begin with. One, I think that if any of us hope for healing and conclusion from the scars that we carry, we've got work to do. The work that we have to do is first this. We have to see the scar. We have to see the scar. We have to acknowledge that it exists. I think that we all have scars. If we think that we are unwounded, uh, we are lying to ourselves. We have to see our scars. We have to acknowledge them. Some of them are easy to see. They're actual scars and they're actually visible. Some of them are, you know, merely a flesh wound, but others, others of them reside so much further down on the inside of who we are in the very depths of our being. Uh, it's easy for us to hide those scars, but we have to see the scar. We have to acknowledge that it exists. 
Because two, if we don't deal with our scars, we are bound to recreate them, perhaps in ourselves or in others. We do the things to others that we did not want done to us. We tend to recreate, recycle the same sort of wounds in other people that have happened to us. So if we don't deal with our scars, we're bound to recreate them. And I think the the motivating force that keeps us from wanting to acknowledge our scars and the thing that therefore keeps us wounding other people is called shame. Shame around our brokenness, shame around our imperfections keeps us from dealing with the scars that we carry. So we have to see the scars, we have to deal with them. And then finally, um, once we've seen them, we've named the shame in them and around them, we have to remember the good news that Jesus has the power to change the power of our scars. Healing is made possible in our lives, I'm going to suggest, uh, by reading a story in scripture here, just quickly. Um, Healing is made possible not by the removing of the scar, but by removing the power of that scar over us. Here's why I say that. Here's why I say that. Um, Here's a cutscene. It's the first time for many in the story that we're meeting Jesus post-resurrection. So Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. Stories of Jesus's resurrection have started to circulate. Some people have had an encounter. In fact, they're talking about one particular encounter. Jesus meets some followers of his on the road to Emmaus. They encounter Jesus. They come back, tell the rest of the disciples what they've seen. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. It says, while they, the disciples, are talking about this experience that there is being shared with them. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and they were terrified. They thought that they were seeing a ghost. But he says to them, Why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your heart? And then he says these words to them, Look at my hands and feet. See that it is I myself. Touch them, right? Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones like you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Like he put his scars in front of them, his wounds in front of them. And he said to them, uh, or says, while they were in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. And he said to them, "Uh, have you anything here to eat? So they gave him some broiled fish, which for those of us who have watched uh, Ghostbusters, we know that when Slimer eats, it goes straight through him. So this is like further proof that Jesus isn't a ghost. He can actually eat, right? When we meet Jesus... For the first time in his post-resurrection perfected self. Part of me always kind of anticipates that we're going to see Jesus fully healed from all the things that killed him. Instead, Jesus shows up in this perfected being, in this perfected state, in this resurrection moment. He shows up and still carries the wounds of the nails, still carries the wounds of the things that killed him in his hands and his feet. John says in his side, Jesus's wounds, they don't go away. They don't go away. In fact, I would suggest here that the wounds are evidence that he's real. They're evidence that he's touchable and tangible, not some sort of figment of our imagination. They're evidence that he's human like us. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus had to be human like us in every way. I'm wondering if there's just part of what it means to be human. Uh, That means we're, we're wounded people. But Jesus shows up with these wounds. He shows them to his disciples. He does not hide them. He invites them to touch his wounds. And and I think in this moment, what we see is that while Jesus is still carrying the wounds of the things that killed him, 
They are no longer signs of defeat. Now they're signs of victory, which is a line by a theologian named N.T. Wright that I just love. They're no longer signs of defeat. Now they're signs of his victory. All of us are wounded. The question is, what do we do with those wounds? I once heard it said that in the kingdom of God, which the Bible talks about as a great banquet table of feast, I once heard it said that uh, we will be seated at this banquet table between the person that we have hurt the most and the person who has hurt us the most. We will literally be sitting between forgiveness and forgiving. Someone, I told them that one time and they were like, that sounds like the most awkward dinner party ever and I surely don't want to be stuck there for eternity. Can you give me a better metaphor for what heaven might be like? Um, But that seat is not a default seat. It's an honored seat. It's a seat of honor at the banquet table of the Lord. Um, Because we get a chance to inhabit the work that Jesus has done in forgiving. Like we get to experience forgiveness at its fullest. And I recognize in a moment like that, um, both the inevitability of what it means for us to hurt other people and for other people to hurt us, like that's that human condition that we seem to be a part of in the world. And yet, um, I also recognize that like the inevitability of those wounds having power and control over us no longer have to be the case, right? Uh, Jesus gives us the capacity to be forgiven and to offer forgiveness, What I think oftentimes comes in the way of us being able to do that is the shame that we carry around the stories and the scars that we bear. Um, And shame, like I said a second ago, I think prevents us sometimes from wanting to deal with it. Just as as a small example, I'll say this, and maybe we can unpack this in another time. Um, Sometimes I find in my own life, it's way easier for me to offer forgiveness to someone else than it is for me to receive forgiveness from someone because of the shame that I carry around the wound that I've made um, in their lives. Um, I I think if we hope that Jesus can heal us, then we've got to come to terms with the scars that we carry. Um, And so um, owning their existence, I want us today to invite Jesus to, to touch, to touch us in those places. So here's, here's what I want to challenge us to do. One, I want to challenge you to name your scars, to see them. Maybe it's a scar that's on the outside. You can actually look at it. Maybe it's one in a deeper place uh, that you're going to have to work to name or to discover. So maybe just for a second, think about where your scars are, where the wounds are that you you carry and that you bear. And then I want to encourage you to kind of press through that and name the shame uh, that maybe you carry around that wound or that scar. The shame that that story sort of brings to your mind when you think of it. It's probably the part of the story that makes your heart race, uh, that makes you uncomfortable, that makes you want to kind of shut me down right now, uh, turn off the channel or, or flip to another subject in your mind. Go watch Netflix for a little bit. Don't watch Turning Red if you don't want to deal with it. Locate the shame around that. And then this week, I really want to challenge you to offer that shame, that scar, that story, um, that pain, of that shame that comes with it, offering it, offer it to Jesus so that Jesus can, can remind you that it no longer has power over you. Um, that it maybe once was a sign of your defeat and now can be a sign of Christ's victory at work in your life. And I want to encourage you to make it tangible, right? So um, maybe as you're praying, for you it's like a mental image. You want to imagine what it looks like to show your scar to Jesus and let him touch it like he showed his scars to us and invited us to touch his. Uh, maybe you need to signify it in some way. Uh, you can do that however you want. Tie, tie a 
a bandana around it or maybe uh, get a get a Band-Aid out and just put a Band-Aid over a scar. Maybe putting a Band-Aid, like I have a scar on my wrist. Um, it doesn't bring me shame. It's, I just broke my wrist. But maybe putting a Band-Aid over it underneath my watch this week would just be a reminder for me that Jesus takes away the power of the scars that we bear. Um, or maybe, uh, maybe you could put it over your heart because you carry your scar there, right? However you want to locate it, maybe a, a bandage or a Band-Aid or something just to signify that Jesus is at work healing that. Um, however you do that, um, I want to encourage you just to, to kind of make it tangible, like let Jesus touch your scar this week in prayer and let that be a, a good news reminder, um, a sign of victory that Jesus has over the worst, painful, most broken parts of who we are. Um, I was going to pray for us um, using some sweet four-town lyrics that come straight out of uh, straight out of the movie. Um, these are the lyrics. And I, I like picture Jesus saying them to us. You're never not on my mind. Oh my, oh my. I'm never not by your side, your side, your side. I'm never going to let you cry. Oh cry, don't cry. I'll never not be your ride or die. All right. May the words of Jesus's presence with you in whatever forms they present themselves uh, bring healing to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, it's been great to worship together with you today. If you would like to engage your faith or the community around you, we'd love to partner with you in that. You can visit our website, fvumc.org to find out more information on what that looks like or to reach out to us. I'd like to extend another invitation for you to come and join us online or in person on Sunday mornings live. Uh, And while you're on our website, uh, again, if this is a regular place that you find spiritual sustenance, we'd love to partner with you as we serve our community here in the greater Fuquay Varina area. Um, FVUMC.org slash give would help you uh, join with us in all of the wonderful work that happens in and through this family of faith here at Fuquay Varina United Methodist Church. It's been great to worship together with you, and we look forward to doing it again soon.